0: <laughs> well, welcome everyone. Tom Miller here from Leaders Building Leaders, and this is one of my favorite times of the week. It's our, it's our Thursday weekly school leadership made real simple uh, call, and we've got a special guest with us uh, today, uh, Steve uh, Pond, who's who's uh, the head of school at Peak Charter Academy here in Apex, North Carolina. And uh, Steve's going to talk to us specifically about, about how using differentiation in the classroom, how has helped them as an organization uh, move from a B school to an A school, but most importantly, ensure that, you know, all their students are learning at uh, the highest level. And and so, you know, if you're on with us live, you know, go ahead and drop in a chat box there. Tell uh, Steve where you're joining us from. He's got a list of questions that we've already shared with him. So he's gonna do a little bit of, uh, of a teaching and then we'll do some, some uh, Q&A uh, with uh, Steve later. So, in the chat box let us know where you're joining from and so this is just an honor and so just a little bit about steve i've known steve now for uh for seven maybe eight yeah. eight eight years in every you know, eight years yeah so like in the office of charter schools when you were opening up uh you know a charter school in the past envision science academy you're part of the you know the ready to open process that's where we first met yes um, absolutely and and he's just done an incredible job of you know leading multiple schools both both had been an A, and, and you're a, uh, I think this is your 22nd year in education? Yes. Is that 22. right? So 22 years in education, uh, but most importantly to a lot of people, and maybe to his uh, family, he's a, he's a husband, he's a great human, and, but he's a Mets fan. He's a Mets yes. fan, everybody. Go Mets. <laughs> that's okay. We won't, we won't hold it against him. But I was really excited to talk to Steve because this past year, you know, Steve was the inaugural – North Carolina Charter School Principal of the Year, and so what a great honor! This is you know something great for charter school leaders that we haven't had in North Carolina. Um, so we'll share a little bit about that. So you know, Steve, I would love you know for you just to start, you know, take us down your education uh, journey. I just heard you share that you know you were in the band and in the drama, <laughs> and then so so how did you you know how did you move from you know being a teacher to a head of a school? Well, thanks for that and thanks for the warm welcome and the the very kind words.
1: Uh, I grew up for the most of my childhood was in Florida. Uh, Born in New York, moved to Florida after a brief stop in North Carolina where my dad went in North Carolina State. Um, Growing up in Florida, I switched from band as Brian and I were talking to uh, drama. That was about seventh grade. Uh, Continued drama all through high school, both in Florida and when I moved back to North Carolina and actually went to college at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro as a drama education major, uh, thanks to the influence of a uh, wonderful teacher, Kathy Nixon, that I had uh, here in North Carolina at Clayton High School. Uh, but then very, uh, very quickly, as a lot of people do, you get to college and it's a completely different thing. Uh, worked my way around and ended up uh, five or six changes later, uh, within the first year or two, as a Parks and Recreation and Sport Management major under the umbrella of leisure studies. Uh, But it wasn't until uh, I got out of school that I realized I wanted to work with kids and I wanted to be an educator. And the big impetus for that was my working at a summer camp that I had gone to as a child from about sixth grade through high school. Uh, And then I had been a counselor and then came back as a senior counselor and their uh, lifeguard and water instructor for canoeing, kayaking, those kind of things. Uh, but then I came back as the director after I graduated and and I saw the incredible influence that that we as adults and young adults at that time that could have. And I really loved and adored working with middle school kids because they were old enough to have those, those kind of serious conversations and knowledgeable of the world and their surroundings. And, and so I came back, worked a little bit in professional sport management with the Philadelphia Phillies and the Durham Bulls, and then said, let me get back to doing what I want to do Uh, after a brief stop in property management and got my license went right into education up in granville county and it's been a a tremendous ride ever since for the the past this is year 22 i've been in a public system public charter uh private christian and university i worked a year at north carolina state
0: yeah and now you know and now the public charter school (laughs) you're with also has you know kind of you know it has a management company on the back end of it, right? So most of the people on here are probably independent uh, charter leaders, right? So what's the difference? Just, you know, maybe in like a 30 second, like what's like the biggest difference? Because you've been both an independent charter leader and also an education management company uh, charter leader. Sure thing. And and
1: really comparing the independent charter setting uh, to even the private school setting that I was in, both have tremendous value and are a little bit different from working with an education management organization. Uh, The biggest thing being that you have partners to help you with uh, the things like doing payroll and the things like uh, working on developing evaluations and and working through the processes that are required by North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. Uh, But even in the independent uh, setting, we had partners that we worked with to do that. And we worked with Tom who gave incredible guidance uh, and support to us. So they are both uh, tremendous in their own way, slightly different, but the primary driver is still loving and supporting and serving our kids. And that's any school that you're in.
0: I love it. So I just added this into the chat box. So this is why I asked Steve to come, right? He, his, you know, his school has made a significant difference in impact. Um, And I want him to talk a little bit about peak charter Academy because he was sharing some of the insides and the demographics. It's not what we might think, um, you know, you know, about that school looking at it from the outside. Um, And then how, you know, how do they, you know, how are they mission-based? How are they ensuring every year students are learning? How are they really equipping your teachers? So, you know, I want Steve to to walk, you know, through this process and just, you know, share kind of on his own time. Feel free to drop some questions in the chat box. So, you know, I'll manage the chat box, Steve, so you just go, you just start to talk about through those questions you got. Sure, Um, well, as I mentioned, I started uh, in education about 22
1: years ago. Uh, But about 19 or 19 and a half years ago, I was involved in a group uh, selected from my school to partner with our district. I was in Wake County at the time. And as you all know, who've been in public districts, there's usually an initiative at the beginning of every year. Uh, And that particular year, the initiative was learning about differentiated instruction. And I had started to do that because I was in a magnet school. And so we had very divergent groups of, of student populations within the school. We had the magnet students who were either AIG labeled, or they were there for the arts program at our school. Uh, So they were on one team, and then the local uh, base population of students we served was on the other, and that was the team I was uh, very fortunate and continued to serve on until I went to administration, and they were the kids who lived in the neighborhood around the school, which was a highly impoverished area, southeast Raleigh, uh, right off Martin Luther King Drive, and and they were where I felt that I could do the most work and, and have the most Uh, opportunity for our kids to grow. So that that year, it was probably 2002, uh, maybe it was three. That was the initiative. So I jumped right on that learning how to differentiate into your instruction. We brought that back and we really implemented. We started seeing gains and growth among our our team uh, to the point where earlier in the year, um, the EOGs that were happening, we did not meet whatever target our grade level needed to meet. And we had a teacher on the other team Uh, serving the AIG population and, and serving um, the arts magnet kids in a staff meeting, very rudely said to our team of teachers, it's because of you all that we didn't make overall proficiency. And, and so we kind of, you know, ingested that and, and tried to swallow that professionally, but then. Remember, those of you have been in North Carolina a while, the ABC's growth, and that was before next on media. We need to update and we need to thank the eighth grade uh, team. You know, we were named the All Stars, but the All Star team, because they are the reason that our school received power that differentiating and tiering instruction. Uh, Can really have. And so I continued in uh, that school. I was there for uh, four years, the next four years. And then I began working as an administrator. I was at Centennial Campus Middle. I had the uh, pleasure to join Riverbend Elementary in Wake County, which was the first of the three schools that I've uh, helped to open. And after that, I did, as I mentioned before, working in the private setting, uh, another charter school that Tom mentioned earlier as a new school. We opened that worked for a year at NC State and then came and joined National Heritage Academies uh, to open Peak Charter in Apex. When we were getting ready to open, uh, as I was hired, we were supposed to open the following August, but that was when the town of Apex was named best city to live in in America by, it was either Forbes or Money Magazine, and that created this huge neighborhood construction boom. So the, the people who were building our school could no longer build a school because they followed the dollars to the the subdivisions. So we were actually delayed a year, but it was a true blessing because it allowed me to um, go into the community and have parent meetings. We were doing every other week, we were having a a family information session about the school. And then in alternate weeks, we had partnered with a couple of community uh, members, one of whom was CC's Pizza, and they had a really good sized restaurant. And they started to let us have very informal Q and A, pizza with the principal kind of meetings, where it was not me doing a formal presentation, uh, a direct instruction kind of whole group that some of you may be familiar with, that I'm kind of averse to because I'd rather just sit down and chat. Uh, so we really learned from those parents that that they weren't getting the differentiation that they wanted. The majority of whom were higher achieving students, or they had gotten that AIG label based on their their third grade EOG, but they were not, they were in heterogeneously mixed classes, so everybody was following the script. When I left Wake County, it was still Blue Diamond. Then it became the Common Core Standard. Uh, As most of you know, when a district adopts a publisher's material, that's the only thing you are supposed to use. So you're following that script, and we would talk to parents about it and say, you know, we get a binder or a website that says today is day 123. And here's what you're allowed to say and do. So we wanted to be different. So we uh, like I did at the previous charter school and at uh, transition, some of our, our private school program and the university team that we served first year students from other countries, we really started to implement differentiation as far back as 2009 uh, when I was working at that private school. And since then, so it's uh, in schools, we've seen that dramatic, uh, increase in student performance in in engagement in teacher comfort and teacher competency because we're learning how to uh, how to really tier and structure your classes to to meet the needs of of all learners and so this is year five at peak uh, we opened with a B we met growth in year one which is pretty hard to do as I'd learned previously as well uh, but then in year two we really full bore implemented differentiation at a much higher level than we did. Uh, We actually uh, brought in some training that we had gone to with uh, the model schools program. Some of you may have heard of uh, the model schools initiative. It's through uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It's the International Center for Leadership and Education. And so we had gone, we got some of the practices and techniques and we supplemented what we were doing. We rose to be an A school and we exceeded growth. And that was the last time we tested. Uh, we just got our data back, and even through the pandemic, we're still a B school and a very high B in, in some of our grade levels, um, and looking like we, we still exceeded the growth metric. But even through the pandemic, we continued to tier and differentiate. It's part of our master calendar for the school, uh, our schedule for the school. We have different tiers and structures of classes. We make changes during the year if a student needs a higher level of support or a higher level of, of challenge. And the biggest thing that we try to do, uh, whether it's, um, I may have met some of you at the, the charter school conferences or the association and the alliance, but we've done some, some workshops at those. Uh, additionally, this past two years, we've been named a model school, which was incredibly humbling, but we got this past year to go to Nashville and we were presenting the schools from all over the country uh, about differentiation and tiering and how that made a big difference for us at
0: peak. Um, but differentiation, Yeah, good. No, I mean, I was gonna say so. So I want to make sure we get a chance to unpack that. But I want to hit on something. You did it as a practitioner, and you and I were talking earlier, like, I didn't have that experience (laughs) as a practitioner. I was a direct instruction guy. So we were tiered, but it was like tiered (laughs) with a script, right? Yes. So So I think that's a big, you know, difference. If you're trying to take your school from here to there, it's hard to take an organization where you've never been. So, you know, make sure because you, you talk this all the time. So make sure you start to unpack maybe some of those little, you know, pieces. When you mentioned tier or changes in your schedule, like what are you yes. using to do that? So just make sure, you know, because you're up here and I want to make sure, to, you know, you know, that the folks listening can start to unpack. If I've never done it before, where do I start? So go ahead.
1: Yeah. The biggest thing is we start with our, our data because we have to have our students do their numeracy and we have to have them do their EOGs. And our teachers from the current year will help to tier them in. We have three blocks per day of each content area. We've done science 90 minutes, math 90 minutes, and ELA 90 minutes. And the science was a differentiator for us because it's usually been, in my past experience, split science and social studies and make sure you toggle every week, every month, every quarter, whatever it is. But since science is a tested subject, we wanted to make sure we give that equity uh, to that content area as we do in math and ELA. So the teachers each year will take the data from the previous year and teacher insight from the previous year, and they will structure the three different classes. One would be a class where students need a lot of foundation building or rebuilding. Uh, One would be kind of a midpoint where students are at or around that proficiency, maybe the 2.5 to 3 range, but they're driving down the curriculum road, but they have some potholes that they need to fill with new learning. And then that higher third level tier are the, the students who are already proficient, those three and a halfs to fours, that it's going to bore them and it's gonna not challenge them if they're just learning either from a script or the same thing as everybody else. The number one thing we do with differentiation is we teach the same standards for everybody, but differentiation is not making it harder for some and easier for some. It's not like it was for me as a kid where everybody in math class The teacher would say, do the odd problems between number one and 30, but all of you that go with Miss Moore, I believe her name was, you have to do all number one through 30. And so that punishes a child for being a little bit more confident and comfortable with the learning standard. So it's not doing more versus doing less. It's not doing harder work versus easier work. The biggest thing that we've shared here and at previous schools I've been in is you're changing the depth and the complexity of the standard you can you know think about it like a swimming pool you start in one end and it's a little bit more shallow but it's still the pool you go into the deeper end where it's six feet you better not be there if you can't swim same thing academically we're not going to give a student those very deep uh, complex understandings of the standard if they haven't learned at least how to paddle yet and tread water and so that's the biggest thing about differentiation and so the teachers here understanding at previous schools so they build the classroom rosters, based on their experience with their children, last year they did it, and at the end of this year they'll did it for the move up teachers, and so that way they have a, a pretty good starting indicator of the the abilities and the confidence and the, the grasp of the the knowledge at the end of the year that they had. Then we get the EOGs because, as we know, they were delayed and just came out for for the ELA renorming, and so we'll look at that again at the beginning of the year we always put a teacher work day at the end of september so about a month in we use that as a day to day and that's all we do we don't have structured pd it's for every team to sit down in their plc and they're going to look and they're going to work to make sure they're in the right seat on the right bus and then if there's anybody who's in the right bus but they're not in the right place then they're going to move them forward so the teacher can keep a little or the driver can keep a, a closer eye on them so we will switch rosters we will change a student's schedule and we just explain to parents it's so we can give Tom a little bit more help or or we see how successful Tom's being, we wanna challenge him a little bit more. Uh, We've also created our master schedule to where we structure our intervention paraprofessionals to be able to go in and serve each grade level 30 minutes a day and they go in during that block where the most support and foundation rebuilding or reconstructing is needed. Uh, and the same thing for our Exceptional Children's Program, most of those, but not always all, are going to be in that mid-tier or that lower level of learning tier. And so all of those pieces that are a part of schedule building, is, as we've all probably experienced, come into play with the focus on being a differentiated learning environment for all of our folks. And the other thing uh, that you mentioned before, Tom, we, we talked about a little bit, is the resources that we get and, and most of all are in uh, us are independent schools or independent schools within an organization. It's not like in the county system where you're only legally allowed to teach from a certain book. I got my hand slapped when I was a teacher for using the old book because I liked it better. Um, the, the, the philosophy of using that textbook or that the structures that come with it, as your guide put you on that direct instruction pathway and you're just making sure like a GPS you're driving the only way or the best way down I-40 when there might be an accident on I-40 and you've got to figure out another way to get to your destination or to reach those kids. And so our philosophy is use those books, those workbooks, those activity guides as a resource, but to empower your teachers to figure out the pathway while still following the roadmap of the, the pacing guide. So you cover what you need to cover.
0: I love it. And I want to pause there because you said a lot of really great things. And I like to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. Remember, Steve, I got 700 on my SAT. So let me make sure I heard <laughs> you right here. So, so if you look at Indicator 2, right, if you, you know, uh, download it, I, you know, I heard Steve say, yep. we have clarity, <laughs> we have clarity in what we teach and what, what we want kids to get to. We know our instructional methods around that, and we empower our very smart professional teachers to figure it out, but just make sure we're all heading to the same destination. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, And then, and I want to make sure that we talk about, so how do I know, you know, students learn what they taught? So what are the types of data you uh, collect? Um, You probably have some daily formative, right? And you probably have, so so talk through some of that uh, process.
1: Sure, Uh, the biggest thing that we believe in is a pre-assessment. Whenever I've I've talked to other school leaders or talked at at meetings and workshops, that's the biggest thing that starts the whole process because unless you know what your your students know, you're completely lost trying to get them to where they're going. And so a pre-assessment or an activity, whether it's something structured that comes from whatever resources that you're using, those are great if teachers want to create them based on the standards that they know they're they're teaching within a unit. Uh, we certainly want to make sure the unit's an appropriate length, so not, a unit does not cover the whole quarter. It might be two to three weeks, maybe four, but you need to have formative assessments throughout so you can have those check-ins. So begin with a formative assessment. We ask all of our teachers to start with a do now. Um, we work with those through SchoolNet. It's a great resource for a dollar a kid to pull those content standard-related questions, and if the teachers have those standards identified, one of the things that we talk about a lot is creating a pre-assessment that has five questions per standard within the unit or the, the section that you're working on. And so if a child gets zero, one, or two correct on that standard, you know you really need to differentiate and work with them individually or in small groups to build their core knowledge. If they get three on average across the two or three standards or individually, they're proficient, but they still got those gaps. And then as we talk about with our teachers, whenever we have IEP goals, we want somebody to perform the task four out of five times consistently. So we call four out of five times or 80% mastery. And so if a a child is is getting four or five right on their pre-assessment in a standard or in the whole group of standards, they're going to be the ones that need that that rigor, which we define not as more or harder, but as depth and complexity. So they might be able to do a much more complex project that they're gonna that learn those concepts much more deeply so they can prepare to present and teach others. Uh, we do a lot, not only with Bloom's taxonomy, but Edgar Dale's cone of experience or cone of learning. Uh, if you don't know that by name, it's the one where we remember 10% of what we see, 20% of what we hear and see, and it goes all the way up. So, So when I was at NC State, I I did a worked out a correlation between Bloom's and and Dale's cone of learning, starting with the bottom of Blooms and flipping Dale's 10%, 20%, 30%. So we really try to make sure, and I'd I'd recommend that to you all, to make sure the, the thinking and the learning that's going on is at least application analysis level. That should be the target, not that knowledge, comprehension, regurgitation stuff. Because anybody who's already grasp those concepts is going to be bored. And if we start too high at synthesize and create, the students who need that knowledge comprehension are going to be flood overwhelmed with the, the flood of information. So that's why differentiation is so important to us. But it does begin with that pre assessment and it continues with daily do nows, uh, daily exit tickets, which are standard based as well. Pull them right out of school net or the teacher can create their own based on their standard. And then have those formative common assessments or formal check-ins before you get to the test because those are really great ways to figure out what they know and what they don't know so you can again differentiate the rest of the the unit or or chapter instruction uh, before they have a test
0: yeah so like it sounds like you have a lot of commonality with your strategies and your assessment you know right there might be some autonomy but but I need this right I need this actual piece of data I wanna make sure I heard you right. Did you say that every student has three 90 minute blocks of content? Yes,
1: we've worked out our, our schedule. We go a little bit longer, 15 minutes a day longer for elementary and 30 minutes a day longer for middle school, uh, which also allows us to stagger car line at the end of the day. Uh, it's an added kind of unintended benefit, but we still offer social studies. They still have their social studies block, but it's not as much as the others because in all honesty and frankness, as a former social studies teacher, I was always told it didn't matter. Whenever there was a a school delay or a field trip or a guest speaker, it was we're pulling time from social studies because it's not tested. I still wanna honor that and have our our teachers honor that. So we have a a block during our day for social studies where even if it's a grade level team, the math teacher, the ELA teacher, and the science teacher will all have a common time to teach a, a social studies unit and then it's reinforced during the 90 minutes of science if it's related to scientific history or the ELA block if it ties in with fiction, historical fiction or nonfiction. We always kind of reiterate that because you know our, our kids' brains and our brains as adults are like the, the soft side of Velcro. And so if that concept is that hard, sticky side, the more little Velcro hooks we can attach to their brains. So we also do a lot of cross-curricular Project-based kind of things, um, so that really does help as well.
0: Yeah. So, can you talk? You know, Steve. Um, there's there's been some comments in here. Uh, Kathy said, "Go Mets." Um, Go and- Mets. Thank you, <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> And then uh, Dana said that um, she learned that teacher's lessons include about 40% of content that the scholars already know. So those pre-assessments are so, are so, yeah, are so important. So, <laughs> so let's, you know, talk about the teachers, right? Cause you can't do this alone. I mean, you have to have, you know, 50 plus staff members, right? How many, yeah. how many staff members are there?
1: We are, we have about 55 total and yeah. it really, it, it has to start with vision casting for the school. And that, that starts from the head of school or the principal in all honesty, um, we have to make sure, and as we are a new school, but as we continue, we have to get the buy-in from our teachers on not only what we're doing, but more importantly, the why. So it goes back to, to Simon Sinek's start with why uh, work. And when they, they understand the why and they understand why we're going to differentiate and we can show them outcomes from other places. And here I use the outcomes and results the previous school that I was at, the private school I was at, and even the work of our first year college students that were from other countries and were adapting to American studies and show how differentiation does work. And the jump we had from year one to year two, just because we were doing it, that, that gets that buy-in because it opens teachers' eyes to saying, again, this is something we can do. And, it, and it's a philosophy and a pedagogy. It's not anything that takes extra money. It's not a, a program in a box that Anybody's trying to sell you. So I loved whoever asked that question about minimal resources. It really takes no resources. It's, it's just a mindset. And so the very first thing we did as a brand new school is we all read Carol Dweck's mindset and did a chapter in our PLCs every couple of weeks. And so our deans, uh or assistant principals, as as they may be called elsewhere, kind of facilitated those PLCs to guide teachers through it. And once we got done with the first couple chapters, the teacher teams took over and uh, guided those. The next group we had to engage was parents. And so we had already done that pre-work with engaging uh, parents in the community to find out what we wanted. And it happened with my background. And when I was going through the hiring process, that's what I shared is my passion was differentiated instruction. And so it aligned with what people were wanting to help their children not only be more successful, but to become more engaged, especially in the higher tier of of student performers who are quite often on board. So I love that question about minimal resources. And so the parents are, they're learning that we don't call them the tier one, tier two, tier three. We don't call them the uh, as some schools have done, the white group, the black group, and the brown group, because there's all sorts of horrible things that that come with that, the connotations, even for buses. When, when I've been to schools and you see color tags on buses, and there's 64 in the box of Crayolas, and they're choosing things that can be aligned with certain demographics of people. And so we don't talk to our kids in a language where they they get the understanding that they know less than or they know more than, because we don't do AIG pullout, all of our support is done through a differentiated learning model. Uh, And if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate later or email me or call me after. I'm always happy to to chat about my passion, but you know, our school's mission and vision use the same buzzwords that everybody else's does. I'm I'm certain of that, it's always, you know, student focused and and higher level of learning and college career readiness uh, and all that. but we have to believe in it. And so getting the right people uh, on board when you're hiring to to fill gaps, the same thing with parents is you want parents that will believe in what you're offering and everybody who's their own independent school entity is offering something unique that they can't get in the public system or even the private uh, around them. And so we want to make sure that, you know, the ultimate goal is we are serving, supporting, and loving your child. And wherever they are, our focus is always on growth, not proficiency. And so that's the big mindset shift we had as well. We hired teachers initially, I think they were from 40 different schools, our whole staff, whether they were paraprofessionals, teachers, staff members, whatever they they may be. And we had to break those kind of school district mindsets and philosophies, even the the hierarchical structures. Um, And so our teachers, when we hired them, we let them focus on their passion. Uh, if your passion is music, be the music teacher. If your passion is math, be the math teacher. But you are responsible for math for the entire grade level. Your colleagues are going to focus on ELA and science, and then you share social studies. And we have some resources we've done, social studies weekly and other things uh, for that. But the responsibility, is, as they say in the Spider-Man uh, movies, great power comes great responsibility. But we found that letting people do what they love Letting them be departmentalized, they're rising to the challenge of being the best darn teacher in that content area that they can be. And so I jokingly told our math teacher the other day, sixth grade math teacher, I said, you are by far the best sixth grade math teacher in this whole school. And it's kind of a joke because she's the only, because the other sixth grade teachers focus on their own content. But that's the belief we have. And even like we do with the kids, with that positive behavior mindset, that's what we keep for our teachers and whatever we can do to help with them adopting that philosophy and adopting the, the practice. And we do PD with them at the beginning of the year and we do onboarding for new staff that we refresh about professional um, differentiation and tiering, grading practices, You know why we don't grade homework uh, versus we do an in-class quiz. And all of those things are mindset shifts from what I found in my public school district years were were drummed into me for the the purpose of continuity. Uh, But we are, um, they move third grade and up from teacher to teacher. Kindergarten first and second are self-contained, but they differentiate within the classroom based on math performance, uh, literacy, um, writing. They have their writing block. And so they're doing small group differentiation within their group. Our third through eighth grade teachers are not only differentiated across their whole grade level, but then they do small group workshop groups within that class. So even within that mid-tier class, you have lower level learners and higher level learners. And so they differentiate two or three different ways within that, but they only have to focus on their passion content area. So we get more buy-in and they're doing less work than if they were planning for everything across the board
0: yeah that's really something I always wanted to do if I was in charge of a school like you know fully in charge of a school, uh, not just for like ninety days what I've had been lately, but that's but that's the model right is to find out the strength zone of the teacher and to keep them in it as long as possible. So I want to make sure because I think you addressed all of Mark's uh, questions right so 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 the classes are self-contained, but they travel from teacher to teacher. so if a student is high in math but low in reading. Do they still stay with them with, with no? The same I'm sorry, to,
1: let me clarify that. They yeah.
0: actually, it's just like
1: um, any other large school. You know, I might be with all of us in this room in our high level math class, but if I'm a struggling reader, I might go to science next because science is more heterogeneously mixed to allow for differences in math and ELA um, abilities and skills. And so we might have somebody that's a high performing ELA student, but low performing in math. Uh, when I was when I was growing up, I was AIG from third grade because I can multiply, and really it was direct instruction, and the times tables had been drummed into us because we had to write them every day at the beginning of the class. So every year after that, I struggled a little bit more in math because there was always that gap from being accelerated, and it wasn't till the other, the second of my two teachers that inspired me to teach, uh, Helen Stevenson, my 11th grade math teacher said, you got some gaps, come start seeing me at lunch, and we'll figure it out, and she fixed me, for lack of a better word, because I was just being routinely moved with that self-contained group of gifted kids, you know, and I was always put in that higher level class, and so if I, if things were like the way we do them here, we would, you know, I might have been in the higher level ELA class, but that mid-level math, so i wouldn't be automatically accelerated based on a test score so the way we've set things up among our three teacher teams is to make sure that we have those higher and lower levels likewise at the the previous charter school we set up when we were new uh was a smaller school as most schools are when they're new but we set up two teacher teams and we had a math science and a language arts social studies on each team and they each taught a more higher level block or a more lower level block Uh, But here at PEAK, I see a question about our demographics. We, as I was sharing at the beginning of the call, uh, we are very unique in that we serve kids from 39 different countries. We have 25 different languages spoken. Um, So we have a very large, robust EL population, which does impact uh, English class, as as many of you know, because the inability to grasp uh, English as a language, speaking, uh, reading it or writing it, uh, does impact that. So we may have students that are, much higher level in math that might be that mid or even that lower level in their ELA.
0: But no, uh, as I see the question
1: from Mark, Hey, Mark, um, we, we don't group by diversity. We group by ability. And then we do change those throughout the year. Uh, So for example, the end of September, when we have that day to day, if, if I'm in a class and it's overwhelming me or I'm in a class and it's boring me, teachers can just flip around and we just communicate to parents positively why the change was made, not, well, Steve's slacking off and he's not doing well in math. It's, hey, we're we're reaching for things and, and they're a little bit out of reach. We want to give them more support and parents have been fine with that. It's all about how you present it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to give everybody a chance here to ask a question if they want to unmute themselves here in a second. So um, the other part that I wanted, you know, Steve to make sure he addressed, Mark had a part two. Clearly, you have strong relationships, right? And that you know, kind of started in the pizza place, you know three or, oh, yeah. or you know four or five years ago, however long ago that that was. But I also heard your teachers have to have effective relationships and be uh, collaborative leaders, right? because there's yes. a lot of communication that has to happen. I really love that end of September a data day. When I just opened up a school, I was like, gosh, I wish we had like a work day at the end of day 10 because mm-hmm. we need it. Right. We need to regroup. We need to kind of make adjustments. So can you just talk about how do you build the relationships? How do you all collaborate? Um, yeah. I would assume that comes about recruiting the right people, right. And having them in your culture, because that's what I wrote. Yeah. Like it's a lot of cultural things you do. So talk a little bit about that and I'll let, you know, folks ask some questions. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is fit as all of us know we are 90% of the time, we're gonna get a resume from somebody who's qualified to teach what we posted the position for. Sometimes we get those that just say, hey, I wanna be a teacher, what do I do? And if they're not eligible for a residency license or whatever it may be called, uh, wherever we're all from, uh, we can't bring them in to our public school setting uh, unless it's a waiver situation and, and go down that road. We do have some folks on waivers who are finishing their license uh, as charter schools do, but. But knowing that we're only going to interview candidates that we feel can qualify or already do qualify, the bigger thing that we look for is fit. And that's fit with our, our culture, our community. And we build that, that community from day one. And uh, And I've learned that by this being the third school that I've had the, the opportunity to work with the team to open. And that's the important thing because that's establishing your identity. Our academic identity is that we are a place for differentiation and tiered instruction, which does attract people to us, but it's the heart that is going to get people in the door and keep people here. And so we're looking for fit. We want people in the interviews. Uh, we ask the uh, the humble, hungry, smart questions in our interviews to figure out where people are are coming from in their professional life and their personal life. I give people, uh, people everybody who's interviewed, I give them a paper clip. And, and I just asked them on the spot, you have one minute to tell me everything you can do with this paperclip besides clip paper. And, it, and I got the idea from the NFL Combines where it was a little more sinister uh, because they would give players a brick. Anything you can do with a brick. And they were using it to rule out people that would say, break a window or, or do other things that might not be appropriate, but ours is, I want, you know, we want to see if people can be creative and innovative and think on the fly. So things like use it as a barrette, use it to, uh, if I, my earring closed up, I can put it in and put the earring back in. Uh, so we've heard tons of things and there's never wrong answers. So that that kind of, how do you do under pressure of a very innocuous thing, but the heart and the fit is the biggest thing. One of the things we've done with our community uh, in year one, year three, and now we're going to do it again in year five, is we opened with a commitment to building a culture of love at peak. And we had big meetings every February. We do this with new families that are applying and we walk them through. Uh, The Five Love Languages. And so there's uh, Dr. Chapman's Five Love Languages. Some of you may have done it with partners or spouses. Uh, They've also written a book. Uh, He partnered with a former superintendent to write a book, Five Love Languages at School. So we actually implemented that from prior to our opening. We had our lottery December before we opened in August, and we started engaging our families in community building, community outings. Uh, For the big ones, we had to rent uh, church sanctuaries for the, the mega churches, uh, just to get three or 400 people in together, and we would sell it. You're not going to want to miss this. It's amazing. We did a winter wonderland theme, and I was reading Night Before Christmas to people, and so we had all the kids come up to the front, and it made it very um, non-religious because we have such a tremendously diverse community. But just all those things, people still remember those. And, and the five love languages we do with kids over the first couple of weeks at school because we can easily tie it into social studies, standard one, learning about cultures and communities, but also our commitment to what we call the moral focus. It's our character development uh, program. And so we do it through that and we can focus, every week is a focus on a, a different type of love language, whether it's receiving gifts or safe touch. Um, And and so we do those and then at the end of the the five weeks, the students get to learn and their teachers retake the assessment and then they make anchor charts and they hang them up in the room so they know what each other's love language is. We do a social contract to make sure in the classroom that it's student driven to, to figure out how they want to treat each other and it's all positively stated. And so it all boils down to the fit and getting the right people again on that bus but also keeping them. So we've really worked, uh, we've received some recognition from our EMO for um, climate and culture. We've, the last two years, 19 and 20, we received top 10 percentile in the, the country ratings for keeping people happy, for lack of a better word, employee engagement. And so keeping people as, as I hope you all are not experiencing as bad as we have in Wake County, but it's really hard to find teachers. Uh, especially when you're in schools that can't pay as much as the district do. Uh, so you've got to have those other differentiators, for lack of a, using that term again, that set us apart. And so things like being unique in our instructional model, things like building community not only in the classroom but externally, uh, things like encouraging your teachers to go to the sporting events and the school plays and uh, things in their neighborhood, those are all little things we can do that you all probably know and do already, but it's how how we keep people. Uh, And even with turnover last year, we were able to open with a full staff because we were selling and reselling all the little things besides the academics of our school.
0: I love it. I just finished that uh, love or the uh, languages of appreciation in the workplace. In the workplace,
1: the red one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been putting out some content. Yeah. you know, you just nailed it, you know, you know, almost it's almost 80% of the appreciation is quality time and words of affirmation. Yet we don't spend enough time giving feedback, sitting with people uh, collaborating and really, you know, working to understand them. So um, I love that. Uh, And as as you all have, You probably
1: have high-performing public district schools around you, which we do, but we're pulling kids from them because what we're offering, these intangibles, we're finding and hearing from parents that that's not what they get in these 1,100-kid elementary schools where the teachers don't even know the parents, the parents don't know, teachers still don't know the kid's name by the third and fourth week of school. They're packed in the classrooms with 35 kids, middle schools seven periods a day, even 20 years ago, when I was teaching in the county, the the limit was 24, and I never had less than 32 in a social studies class. Mm-hmm. And that was even higher because as many of you know, when you have students who have IEPs, it's often they're served in math and ELA and maybe science, but let's go out for specials in social studies. So my classes were even more full as, as they are in most schools, but we've got to make sure Wherever they're coming from, underperforming schools where they're not being engaged, they're not being served the right way, kids who need a lot of foundation building aren't being supported, we want to have that opportunity to support and grow that child because, again, keep that target on growth, not on proficiency. What we tell our teachers on day one is you're going to get proficiency if you aim for growth and you set a different growth target for each class and then each group within the class and then even each kid. And not meaning growth on the EOG, but growth on their comfort and their ability to learn and shine and be successful. And that's, that's always been my personal mission is to help people, whether it's a kid or an adult, to, to learn, to grow, and to thrive to the best of their own unique ability. And that's just kind of what has driven me through all the years and all these different settings.
0: Yeah. That's the growth mindset, right? I mean, yeah. just,
1: there is day no cap. one. We, we gave that to teachers before they started mm-hmm. and asked them to be ready to start talking about Dweck's mindset on day one.
0: Yeah, can you so so let's just talk about that as we start to close up here. You know, if anybody has a question, go ahead and you can unmute yourself. But I want to take you know Steve through some rapid questions before we leave sure. too. But talk talk about you know the training, right? So so you've so talk about the training that you think it would be good for principals to start to look at for their teachers, and the principals themselves and experiences. And then I want you. You know, share a little bit about your leadership uh, development experience. You know, through either the organization that you work for or your own. You know, a personal. You know, sounds like you're a big reader, right? So, so you know, what are some recommendations around that too? Um,
1: The the reading, the biggest two things that we did here, Dweck's mindset, um, Dan Pink's Drive. uh, If you don't know Drive, um, those are the big two that we started with. Year one and year two book study. Um, We then started to have the COVID issues. So we kind of disengaged from the book study because we were, uh, we were doing teaching at home with kids in the building and trying to do both simultaneously, which if any of you experienced that, I'm sure it was as nightmarish uh, as, as it was for us, then we were mostly virtual and um, continued that. And so with being back, we're really focused on, on getting people back, but we're continuing their development. So we had this relaunch of what are our commitments to how we do things here. Um, the biggest person I could, I could recommend about differentiation is Rick Warmley. It's W-O-R-M-E-L-I. Uh, a guy that I worked with at NC State, I was teaching our, our team who works with all the students, as advisors and counselors, and we're teaching their NC State classes about Warmley. And, and this, my buddy Enoch looked over and and said, how do you know Mr. Warmley? And I said, he's like the guru of differentiation. So his books are Fair Isn't Always Equal, Differentiated Instruction, and and several more. Any of those will give you the the foundation and the mindset to start sharing with with your folks. He's the one that I recommend to everybody. I'm definitely not a paid spokesperson, but I'm a true believer. But I I said that, and, and my buddy Enoch said, he was my middle school teacher in Virginia. And he still is. He still is a teacher, but he goes, travels all around the world uh, kind of like Ron Clark and other people speaking at all these mega conferences. and um, So Warmly would be the huge one. And then figuring out ways on how you can adjust your master schedule. And if anybody wants, it, you're welcome to reach out to me, call me, email me. Tom's got my information. When I am can get to the chat box, I'll put it in there. But I'm always happy to chat because it's what I believe in. It's, it's always been my passion. Um, just making sure that Teachers feel comfortable and teachers feel equipped to make that transition because as, as many of you know and have heard through all your education training, we learn the way, uh, we teach the way that we were taught. That's how we enter a classroom. Then we all get Harry Wong's first days of school book and we started to learn a few new things and tricks and that helps us stay afloat through the initial years. But we were often, if we were in school systems, still doing exactly what we were told to do which is follow that script, use only this resource. I mean, gang, I got in trouble for doing workshop kind of things with kids that couldn't read because the eighth grade curriculum said they were supposed to to review this um, English text from when uh, colonization was happening, but it was written in that old English manuscript and it was a photocopy of that. My kids can't read very well at the school that I was at, most were third or fourth grade they certainly can't read Old English cursive. And so we changed up some things and we made it a printed activity and and we had them kind of respond. I made it a printed activity and then I made it more common vernacular than Old English vernacular. And I got my hand slapped for it because it wasn't what the book and the script said to do. But don't be afraid in your independent school to do that. Make it, make learning accessible to your kids, make autonomy accessible to your teachers, We talk a lot here, and every teacher, if we say sandbox, they know what we're talking about. You can play any game you want that's within the sandbox, and the sandbox is your standards, your scope and sequence, and your pacing guide to make sure you cover what you're supposed to cover, not because we're trying to to hammer thumbs throughout the year, but we need to set your children up for success in fourth grade for them to be successful in fifth and sixth and seventh. So you don't have what happened to me, which was every year in math, I had little gaps because I was put into the group that skipped the first half of fourth grade and skipped the first half of fifth grade. So I was always ahead. Then I was struggling a bit. And it was, you're supposed to be gifted. You're, why aren't you achieving? You're being lazy. You're not participating. And none of that was the case. I was just lost. So I would start with warmly. I would start with creating what we, what we call here is a horizontal organizational structure everybody's on the same level. And it goes far beyond the, you know, you you probably heard other people say, well, I'm just like they are, I pick up trash on the in the hallway. It goes far beyond that, because a lot of time that people say that for show, as you probably know. But also it, we have to be able as as we all know, as leaders to listen to our team. And if somebody's not getting it, or somebody's come in with the mindset of I'm a direct instruction person, as you said before, Tom, we've got to sit with them and differentiate how we work with our adult leaders so they can get to the shared understanding of a philosophy. None of what we do is scripted. Yes, we have standards, and yes, we have resources, but get them in the right place so then they feel comfortable and positive to flex a little bit in their classrooms. Because I know a lot of teachers who feel boxed in, and we don't want people to feel boxed in, and that's why we do the the way we do here is to free them a little bit to be the teacher that inspired them to teach. Because that teacher for me was never the teacher that told me I was not paying attention or I I am supposed to be gifted, so why do I have a C? It's the teacher in 11th grade that I mentioned that got me out of the hole with math and caught me up and showed me differentiating without me knowing it. And it's that drama teacher who taught me about safe appropriate relationships with, with the people in your building But knowing that that teacher cares about you and and is supporting
0: you and being there for you, I love it. There's one more question. Can you talk a little bit about student behavior concerns? Do you have any like, yeah? What are your systems, and especially you know, the uh, Lauren asked about the lowest you know tiered uh, classes. Anything when you're you know trying to stretch a student right who's never been stretched before, and you put some high expectations on them, you know, it's it's a fight or flight. Uh, So, what are some ways that you all handle? you know, student behavior and character?
1: Well, great question. Thank you for that, Lauren. Um, Academically, behavior ties into academics, as we know, as Tom just said, fight or flight. If something's too much of a reach for a kid or something's too boring and beneath them academically, we're going to see more behavioral issues and more struggles and more punching each other in the arm or passing notes or whatever the little things may be. Sometimes they're bigger things. We've already had fights this year. We had a kid bring a, a box cutter, you know, different things that every school has those issues, and it's only the people that sit around trading war stories that, that you learn about them, but uh, it's like the iceberg. You, know, you only see 10% of what's going on somebody else's school, but as I know here, and you all know at your school, there's 90% that you might not want to even talk about, but other people might not even know. Um, so the, the lowest tiered class, of course, we never call them that. It's never consistently block three throughout the day. And that's purposeful because we want our interventionists to be able to go to every grade in our school, K through eight, once a day. They can pull small groups. We put tables in the hallway. Primarily, we want them to go into a classroom and take over one of those workshop stations. So even if it's that mid-tier class that, that might only have a couple kids struggling, if I'm the interventionist, I can jump in and when they're at station three, I can just take over station three, work with them for that 12 or 15 minutes that they're there they move on. I bounce, and the next group comes to station three, and they've got their tier activity to do. Whether they're the blue group, green group, orange group, uh, whatever it is, and so same thing with behavior. It's common expectations, and we we teach everything positively. I've been a big believer in that for years and years. I got so sick and tired of going into teachers' classrooms. Don't chew gum. Don't get out of your seat. Don't you know all these no no no's? When it's much easier to say, please stay in your seat. Please raise your hand please use level two conversation voice. So those of you who know who champs, we start every day with champs. We review what conversation is, how you get the teacher's attention, what participation looks like, how we get to success, which is the S. if you don't know that. Um, so we teach the same expectations in every tier of student and every block. And we're not a they're never associated with that tier because as, as Tom asked before, you could be in low, lower math tier, but higher ELA or mid ELA. Uh, science is always heterogeneous. So there's never that belief of, oh my gosh, I'm with these same kids all day. We must be the smart kids or the low kids or whatever it may be. We are very, very purposeful in, in shaping it that way. Um, they have a homeroom and the homerooms are heterogeneously mixed. So they don't leave homeroom homeroom doesn't end, and that begins first period, because then that associates that with whatever block one is, and so we teach that common expectation. We made the switch in year two to always start on a Thursday, so the district starts on a Monday. Thursday before, this year it was the 19th. The 19th and 20th was nothing but positively teaching routines, procedures, and expectations, practicing them. Some of our kids are brand new. Some haven't been here in 18 months, Some came back at some point during the year last year at any of our four return points. And so everybody needed that refresher, even if they were still here in June. And so we've engaged our teachers in the the power of that positivity. So, hey, when we walk in the hall, we're going to stay on these dots when we're standing. We put dots every three feet all up and down all the hallways. So when they're lingering, they're not at the back of somebody's head. If they're turned around and talking, hey, you know, we want to face forward so we're not, you know, will jokingly say, I don't wanna breathe your breath, so turn around. And uh, even though they're all masked and, and we're doing that, it, the, if we can positively state it and just remind over and over in that positive, even that that scholar who's not doing what they're supposed to do is gonna pick up on it. And we do that every morning when they come in. Hey, Tom, thanks for having your shirt tucked in. Hey, Brian, you look great. Thanks, you're ready to learn. That kid that's right behind them, if Lauren doesn't have her shirt tucked in, not picking on you, but you're right next to, to Brian, you're going to start tucking your shirt in quick. And I'm like, Lauren, thank you so much. And, and that's why, you know, another big thing for community and culture is I'm out at drive, uh, drive-in every day. And I took over this year doing the dismissal line where we type in all the numbers and it shows up in the classroom. Some of you might do walkie talkie calls, whatever they are with the car tag number. I took over being that primary person because I have that face-to-face contact. I was always out there and always walking up and down between cars, but, it's a twofold thing. I can I can get it done because I know how to get it done quickly, but I can also have that face to face with every parent, grandparent, whoever comes and goes, and we can wear on that. I can wave at every car that leaves, and so focusing on that positive reinforcement that you know we do have a PBIS committee. It's not back up and running yet because we're just trying to keep school running uh, normally now that we're back. But the first two days were behavioral expectations with going to practice. Take them to the restroom. Take them to and from recess. Practice over and over in your half hour of time that you have for recess. Lunch. Take them back and forth to lunch, even if you're only in lunch for 30 minutes, really about 25 for pickup. Practice during the day of walking and going to lunch. Practice them getting their lunch box and carrying it down the hall. Do it again in the afternoon after lunch, just so they get those that muscle memory for the positive affirmation expectation of what we wanna do, and then it gets to them. Then the next full week was really looking at academic expectations, and that really helps with those students who struggle. We didn't barrel in right away. Yes, we had some kind of pre-assessment things we needed to do to see where people are, but we weren't hammering our kids with homework. Um, In week one, it was this is how we're gonna do things in class. We are not rotating people to workshop stations now, We've assigned seats in classrooms. So we've assigned them seats with the people that they would be in those rotating groups. That way, we know if somebody's a positive test, we know who they sit by and we can contact trace. But we instead rotate the station to each small group. So we've taught them those procedures. Even some of those getting to know you beginning of the year check in kind of things, we did them in those small groups and and we were good to go with that. We really didn't start hammering down till. A week ago with real academic instruction and our eog uh, bog all over our m class and all that just because we needed to have the norm set positively uh, in the classroom so that really works for every student not just those who have behavior issues and those who don't we had a kid the other day constantly in trouble for little things sometimes it's pushing shoving hitting he walked away and we watch it we would have never believed it a kid who reported him for punching him several times parents called she told other parents we found the video the other kid started he kicked the kid first the kid threw a ball back at him playground ball he walked away then the kid started chasing him started kicking at him again the kid who was had been the behavioral issue maybe in first second third grade fourth grade he turned around walked away we caught it all on camera so we not only had to have the conversation with first mom to tell her your baby didn't tell you the truth and we have it all on video but it was so awesome to be able to talk to the other mom and our dean just lit up when she did that just i caught her in carpool she was so overwhelmed she was happy crying and it was just because he made that choice yeah and we've been talking about it for two weeks every time they line up what are the positive things we need to remind ourselves of yeah that's kind of how we do it
0: yeah consistency compounds i mean i love that amen and if you all downloaded those 10 indicators, so just in 60 minutes with Steve, we learned number one, the first indicator, a clear and sustained vision, right? So from day one, this has been the vision. They have, uh, you know, clear education plan where everybody knows what is going to be taught, what, you know, students are learning and how and what will we do if they don't master it because they have this clear definition of mastery. Um, you know, talk about uh, student work and the uh, culture and training teachers and the high levels of um, you know, consistent behavior and, uh, and uh, collaboration. So I just I just love that, that there was so much information. Someone on the way out said, "There's so many powerful thoughts here. I'm going to have to go back and listen again." So, you know, you know, Steve, thank you so much. So you can reach out to Steve. He uh, he uh, put his email in there. S pond p o n d s pond at n h a schools. The uh, charter school that he leads here in North Carolina. It's called Peak Charter Academy. Congratulations to Steve. I think we can tell a little bit why why in an hour, Steve, that you won the first North Carolina Charter School Principal of the Year. So we're really excited and honored to spend some time with you, uh, with the members of our inner circle and our school leadership, Yeah, real simple community. So there's one last question, Steve, in 30 seconds or less, right? If you were going to uh, uh, start a school or start an initiative right now, what would be the, the first thing that you would do um, you know, you know what would be the key thing you need to make sure that all school leaders need to be doing during these difficult times?
1: Differentiating tiering instruction because we know our kids have mental health struggles, social struggles from being apart from peers and being back with new peers. Um, and then number three would be making sure to take care of your team.
0: Yeah, I love it. Right. So because it all comes down to humans. So what I heard you say yes. is it's about the, we're in the people business, everybody. Yeah. 100%. We're in the people business and we need to make sure that we know how, right? Or we have people on our team. If we're not a people person or like a person people, as my eight-year-old son would say, you know, we've got to make sure we've got folks on our team who are. And we mm-hmm. need to learn how to do that. So reading books like the love languages, right? Or the appreciation in the workplace and the growth mindset and, and surrounding yourself with individuals who, can you know help you create a culture like this? Like you know, going to Peak Charter Academy, and and once once we're through all this, we would love to come and visit your school, Steve, and walk through and yeah, actually anytime. see what you just talked to us about. So again, thanks everybody for. Being can I add by. one thing? Real quick? Yeah, go for it.
1: Please know we have our words. By no means are we, are <laughs> we where we want to be, or we anything close to perfection. It, it's a vibe that works for us, and it's it's research based, which is a great selling point with. With parents and teachers you can look at other schools and look at your own own school when you uh, start to to implement things like this uh, show the data share the data if data is not coming back pivot and make those changes that's where that horizontal leadership needs to come in is we can't be afraid to say hey I screwed up what do we need to do differently I had one of those conversations this week but um, and and find role models one of the things Tom asked about was role models, people that you can learn from. Uh, Tom was one of those, as he mentioned for me, and, and still has been, I follow pages. I, I'm i on LinkedIn with Tom, I've watched videos and have come to um, lead, uh, learn to live, learn to lead. And uh, those have been great. I've got incredible leadership that I've I've worked with at NHA. Uh, I, I'm continuing to learn, I'm in a doctorate program right now. Uh, my department chair, who's been a professor for two of the three semesters has been Phenomenal. So keep challenging yourself, too, because otherwise you get stagnant and nobody likes to drink from a stagnant pond of water.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a great way to end. Yeah, you're right. You never stop growing. That's the growth mindset. There is no cap on your, uh, your uh, capacity and education unless you, uh, you know, create your own lid. And yeah, and live, live to lead is October 8th. Uh, so I'll be seeing you there again, Steve. I know yeah. you're coming. And so. and
1: this is hard, y'all. And yeah, that's the <laughs> elephant in the room. What we do Super is hard. the hardest thing I've ever done. I've worked in professional sports and real estate and summer camps and I've been a teacher and love being a teacher. But what we are doing is the hardest thing I've ever done. And, and now that parents had their kids for up to 18 months, they're realizing how hard it was. And we're hearing that. They're getting thank you, we're getting thank yous and appreciation. <laughs> Thank you for taking my kid back. But whoa, now I get why you told me what you did in the conference.
0: Yeah, my wife says it every day. There's no way we're going back to virtual. So Uh, (laughs) so, so the second hardest job or maybe your dream job might be Mr. Met, right? So maybe we (laughs) can. I did get to play
1: Woolly Bowl a couple of times when I was with the Durham Bulls. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Awesome. Been in a
1: mascot suit and I'm not looking forward to it again. I do the mascot here from time to time, but it's quite
0: warm. That's right. And, uh, you know, the other Steve... (laughs) Thanks, Steven. That's right. Go (laughs) Yankees. I would agree. Um, So, yeah. So that'll be the second podcast that uh, we do together, Steve, is you uh, telling us your stories about being Woolly Bull. uh,
1: (laughs) Bull, And I'll put put Jolly Roger the Pirate's head on while I do it. We've got him.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks, everybody. Wherever you're listening to us, right, you know, make sure if we... If, you know, uh, Steve said something you liked, share it out with other school leaders. Uh, make sure you're uh, uh, subscribing to our channels because we aim to bring you great content like uh, Steve and great leaders like Steve uh, every single Thursday at once. So again, reach out to Steve if you had a question. Yeah, and please, I know there don't was some hesitate. Master calendars and all these things. I'm going to be asking Steve for some resources and, <laughs> and I'll make sure they get backed out. So go ahead and reach out to him at spond at uh, dot org, uh, and then dot .com dot com sorry .com. and then yep. or you can just look up Peak Charter Academy part of the National Heritage Academy's uh, charter school uh, program so thanks everybody have a great day be safe wear your mask wash your hands wait your turn <laughs> Let's all thanks done. everybody all right. take care bye thanks Steve great job you got it hey leaders before you go I just wanted to remind you about an upcoming event that we have it's our live to lead annual leadership simulcast This Live to Lead event is going to bring the best thought leaders into your conference room, into your living room, wherever you want to watch this upcoming session. You're going to hear from five world-class communicators, leaders, thought leaders, thinking partners, uh, strategists who, who are impacting and influencing tens of thousands of people around the globe every day. And we're going to give you a chance to learn from them directly. So go to our website at LBLeaders at LBLeaders.com. That's LBLeaders.com. And at the very top, you're going to see an invitation for you and your team to buy your ticket to live to lead. You're going to have an extraordinary uh, time. Bring your team. You're going to feel uh, inspired, refreshed, and renewed. And Early bird ticket prices are closing soon. So go get your leader pass right now and take your team to the next level on October 8th.